Our Father, I am so desperately concerned that we strike the right tone this morning. So often the church, as it approaches the topic of homosexuality, has been accused of being angry, mean-spirited, hateful, and many times those indictments are true. I want us to be different. I pray that you would help us to be clear both in our hearts and in our words as well as in our actions that we are not against people. We are for people. What we are against is that sin which would destroy people and would destroy the everlasting joy for which you created them. I pray that we would not be known primarily for what we are against, but for what we are for. We are for freedom. We are for happiness. We are for a deep and abiding joy that comes only from walking in the design that you created for us and pursuing fullness of joy in right relationship with you. So I pray this morning that all pride and haughtiness and anger and contempt, derision, I pray all such malicious feelings and attitudes would be driven from our hearts and that we would look upon this issue and look upon people with a deep and desperate compassion, knowing that we too are sick, but that the same Savior who cured us and is curing us can cure all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This passage, which is arguably the most controversial in the entire New Testament, occurs within the context of a larger argument which Paul makes beginning in verse 18 and concluding in verse 32, in which he indicts the entire human race though he primarily has in mind pagan Gentiles, for exchanging the glory of the immortal God for idols. And as I argued last week, the exchange of God for that which is not God forms the essence of all sin. All sin, when you strip away its external aspects, its different forms and manifestations is an exchange of the glory of God for the glory of some created thing. Adam exchanged a relationship of faith and obedience in the enjoyment of God's presence for self-sovereignty and the right to decide for himself what was good and evil to disastrous consequences. And his descendants have been doing the same ever since. Every time that we exchange the holy sexual union within the covenant of marriage for illicit sexual experiences, 
every time that we exchange our personal integrity for the praise of man, every time we exchange the joy of holy worship for the worship of money or materialism, we are in essence exchanging God for an idol. We are committing a great and cosmic sin of declaring that some created thing that elicits sexual experience, the praise of men, money, and the comforts which money can buy, we are expressing that that created thing is more beautiful, more glorious, more satisfying, and more capable of yielding eternal and lasting joy than the all-glorious and all-satisfying creator. This is the essence of evil. It is the substance of iniquity. As with Adam, the sinful exchange brings judgment. The flow of judgment takes place in successive yet contemporary stages. First, says Paul, men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 18, that truth which God has revealed in creation to every man. Verses 19 and 20 with the result that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Out of this darkness and futility, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, they exchanged the glory of God for idols. They made idols with their hands and worshipped those idols as if they were God. Then, as a result of their idolatry, God gave them over in judgment and wrath to act like the animals whose image they worshipped. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and fornication, acting according to some primal animal instinct instead of in holiness as the image bearers of God. Verses 24 and 25. Yet they continued to exchange the truth about God, namely that he is supremely glorious, for the lie, namely that other things are more glorious. So God gave them over in judgment and wrath to act like less than animals, who at least fornicate according to their nature. Humanity's affections and attractions turned in unnatural directions, and they burned with passion for one another, men lusting after men and women lusting after women and committing shameless acts with one another. Homosexuality, in other words, is a vivid expression of the grotesque exchange of God for idols. It is a vivid expression of the primordial sin of rejecting God as the source of the knowledge of good and evil and assuming the place of God as the arbiter of what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong and what is natural and what is unnatural. Homosexuality is idolatry. It is God-making, and it is the result of the present revelation of God's wrath upon ungodliness. Reject me, God says, and I will give you over to do that. Homosexuality is as old as human civilization. While it's not my intention to give a history of homosexuality this morning, I do want to place it in its biblical and historical context. Homosexuality appears in the biblical record as early as 2000 BC 
when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the valley for their wickedness in Genesis 19. It was widely practiced in Canaan by 1440 BC when God instructed Israel who was preparing to invade and conquer the land of Canaan that they were not to imitate the practices of the inhabitants of the land that he was giving to them. So we read in Leviticus 18 verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Among those practices that God is referring to, those practices which were practiced in Canaan but are prohibited for Israel under penalty of death were incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, and homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22. Moving on in biblical history, cultic male prostitution plagued Israel throughout its history. It appears in such places as 1 Kings 14, 15, 22, and 2 Kings 23. That is, men were going to the temples in Israel, temples erected to pagan gods, and they were having sex with men in the worship of those pagan deities. There's even that horrific episode in Judges 19 where the Israelite city of Gibeah reenact the sin of Sodom. It's well established that homosexuality was prevalent in Greco-Roman society and it was widely accepted among the wealthy and the ruling classes. It was common enough in the first century world for Paul to hold it forth in Romans 1 as a preeminent example of human depravity and of the present revelation of God's wrath upon mankind. Indeed, we find in 1 Corinthians 6 that there were former homosexuals who were now members of the church in Corinth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, homosexuality is not a modern phenomenon. It has been and is still found in every culture and in every civilization in every time. But I would argue that never before in the history of human civilization has homosexuality been as aggressively normalized as it has in the West in the last 40 years. Homosexuality has always existed on the fringes and in the shadows, but it has now come into the light, and it demands not only tolerance, by the way, do you remember when tolerance about a decade ago was the buzzword? You don't hear much about tolerance anymore. We've moved beyond the demand that homosexuality be tolerated. Now, the demand is celebration by the culture at large. Anything short of this celebration is termed as bigoted or homophobic or an expression of hate. Therefore, never before in history has the church been faced with the present situation. In every other generation of the church's history, 
The church's condemnation, its biblical condemnation of homosexuality scarcely raised an eyebrow because society at large agreed that it was an unnatural and societally destructive practice. This is the reason it was criminalized in most, if not all, cultures. Until recently, the church did not have to be particularly careful in the way it spoke of homosexuality, but things have changed. Now the church must be very cautious in the way it approaches the issue and very precise in the way it speaks about the issue. In times past, if the church said things, and it often did, that were objectively hateful or homophobic, nobody called them to account. Now we must take care not to give unnecessary offense because offense is quite easy to come by these days. So let me be clear. The biblical stance on homosexuality is itself an offense to the present culture. And we must not apologize for, nor back away from, nor hide our convictions. Offense is unavoidable. What I want us to avoid is unnecessary offense. Unnecessary offense which comes from either saying things that are not true or saying true things in a way that is not gracious. In other words, we must not be homophobic and we must not be hateful. Rather, I would like us to be compassionately convictional. I want us to speak the truth in love. I want us to reflect our Savior who was full of grace and truth. I want us to address this issue with a great deal more humility than we have in the past and a great deal more courage than those in the present who have equivocated and bent to the demands of the culture. So with this aim in mind of grace and truth, of compassion and conviction, I want to answer some frequently asked questions this morning with regard to the Bible, the church, and homosexuality. Now clearly I can't answer every question you may have, nor can I answer any question in as much detail as it demands, but hopefully this morning will give you a starting point to know how to engage on this preeminent of cultural battlefields. Before we begin, though, I want to give us a warning. There should be no one in this congregation this morning who approaches this topic from an us and them attitude of moral superiority. Why? Well, I want to give you three things to think about, three truths to consider. Number one, there are undoubtedly more than a handful among us who either have had or continue to experience same-sex attraction, and some have undoubtedly had same-sex experiences. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, 4.5% of American adults identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, which I view as just different manifestations of the same unnatural bent, including 8.2% of millennials. Millennials are those born between the years 1980 and 1999. Let me run those stats by you one more time, this time letting you know that these are people who self-identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. These are people who have come out of the closet. It does not include those who are still in 
the closet. Therefore, I suspect these numbers are actually much, much higher. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, 4.5% of American adults, that is four and a half out of every 100, identify as LGBT, including 8.2%, that is eight out of 100, of millennials. Therefore, I don't think we should be naive. We are no different than the Corinthian church. For those who struggle, for those among us who struggle with same-sex attraction, this topic is difficult and it is intensely personal. And an attitude of moral superiority is immensely hurtful. Number two, I would suggest that most of us have someone we love who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. And for those of us who do, this topic is heartbreaking because these are people we love. Number three, we are members of one body. If you are a covenant member of First Baptist Nixa, you are a member of one body. Therefore, what affects one affects all. Unless you are not really a member of the body, this is a personal issue for all of us because this is a personal issue for some of us. Compassion and love, not just for those outside the church, but for those within the church, demands that we approach this topic with grace and humility. So this morning, I'm not intending to give you bullets for your gun so that you can go out from here and win an argument. Therefore, prove yourself biblically and morally superior to them. My intention, rather, is to train you as a physician of souls so that you can diagnose the root problem and propose the real cure. Question number one, this place we must begin, is with the question of, is homosexuality a sin? Yes, This is not even a question for those of us who affirm the authority of Scripture. The Bible clearly and consistently condemns homosexuality as sin. But for the sake of thoroughness, I want to give you three biblical arguments. Number one, homosexuality is a perversion of God's design in nature in which all heterogeneous creatures are biologically designed and behaviorally programmed to reproduce via heterosexual unions. Simply put, if homosexuality had been a part of God's creative design, then the reproductive systems of his creatures would exhibit homosexual compatibility. But they do not. In other words, creation was designed for heterosexuality. Number two. Homosexuality is a violation of the sanctity and design of the marriage covenant, at the heart of which is the sexual union of one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage is the matrix through which mankind is to fulfill the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 1.28. It is not for nothing that Christians make the claim that heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong covenant marriage is the framework for human society, and that when this institution is perverted by homosexuality or adultery or polygamy or divorce, it is destructive to society as a whole. Third, 
Homosexuality is a transgression of the will of God revealed in Scripture, as I sought to demonstrate above from texts like Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, Leviticus 20, 13, and 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. So there are three biblical arguments that undergird our assertion that homosexuality is a sin. There's an argument from nature, namely God's design in nature. Number two, there's an argument from God's design in marriage. And number three, there's an argument from biblical revelation. Now, for those who deny the authority of Scripture, the above arguments carry no weight. Therefore, if you try to engage them on the basis of Scripture, you may as well be speaking a different language. Or, one would have to, I suppose, engage on different grounds, whether psychology or sociology or, or not engage at all. But there is a new challenge to the orthodox Christian view of homosexuality that the church has never before in its entire history encountered. The rise of so-called gay Christians or gay-affirming Christians who claim the Bible as authoritative and yet accuse Orthodox Christians of misinterpreting it in an over, overly literal fashion that takes no account of genre or context of Scripture have presented a recent and serious challenge to Orthodox Christianity. Prominent advocates of this progressive form of Christianity are Matthew Vines, author of God and the Gay Christian, as well as popular bloggers like Rachel Held Evans and Jen Hatmaker and others. In the face of this new and rising challenge, I thought I would briefly respond to three of this camp's most prominent textual objections, and then a fourth one further below as its own point. So here are three common objections that you will hear from those who name the name of Christ, claim the Bible as an authority, and yet affirm homosexuality as a legitimate expression of human sexuality. Objection number one, Genesis 19, that's the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, is not about homosexuality, but rather about sexual violence or even social injustice. Progressive Christians will often claim that what brings down God's wrath upon Sodom was not homosexuality per se, but violent gang rape, which nearly occurred on Lot's doorstep. Surely, they say, it is not right to equate such grotesque sexual violence with committed consensual homosexual relationships between two men or two women that last 20, 30, 40 years. Surely they're not the same thing. Furthermore, in Ezekiel 16, 49... Doesn't God identify the sin of Sodom as having pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease while not aiding the poor and the needy? In other words, social injustice. It is not homosexuality, rather, but social injustice that brings down sulfur and fire upon Sodom, so the argument goes. Well, in response to the first objection that the sin of Sodom was sexual violence and not homosexuality per se, I would say that this is a revisionist interpretation that lacks both biblical and historical support. For one thing, the sexual violence exhibited in Genesis 19 is that of a homosexual nature, and it is presented in the narrative as the extreme expression of a rampant homosexuality that had come to characterize Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the valley. 
Moreover, if Genesis 19 is not about homosexuality, but rather about sexual violence, then this was news to every Jewish interpreter of Scripture in the intertestamental and New Testament period. Because their literature, and there are copious amounts of it, uniformly interprets Genesis 19 as a condemnation of the sin of homosexuality. Finally, and most conclusively for me, Jude 7 identifies the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as indulging in sexual immorality and pursuing, quote, unnatural desire, literally strange flesh, sarkos heteros. In other words, Jude, the the Holy Spirit-inspired interpreter of Genesis 19, identifies the sin of Sodom as homosexuality, unnatural desire, not merely sexual violence. In response to the second part of this objection, that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality per se, but social injustice, the larger context of Ezekiel 16 makes this interpretation untenable. Because in the very next verse, Ezekiel 16.50, God says regarding Israel, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. That word translated abomination is a key word in the Old Testament scripture. It's the Hebrew word to'abah, which is the same word that is used in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 for homosexual intercourse. In other words, the sin of Sodom was not social injustice or homosexuality. According to Ezekiel 16, it was social injustice and homosexuality. Objection number two goes like this. If Christians are going to use Leviticus to denounce homosexuality, they should apply it consistently. In other words, why do Christians think the Levitical prohibition against homosexuality is still relevant, but the prohibition against bacon or shrimp or wearing clothes made of two kinds of fabric is irrelevant? This objection is a popular one, and it's supposed to show that it is absurd to take the Bible so literally and not within its cultural context. Now, against charges of irrelevance, Kevin DeYoung, in his great little book entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality?, gives six reasons why the Levitical prohibitions against homosexual practice are not irrelevant. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to spare you the first five, and I'm just going to give you the last and best. He says this, The sexual ethic outlined in Leviticus 18 and 20 is squarely reaffirmed in the New Testament. In other words, if the prohibition of homosexuality only occurred in Leviticus 18, there would be some merit to this objection, but it doesn't. One cannot legitimize homosexuality by relegating it to the so-called irrelevant portion of Scripture because it's clearly condemned in the New Testament, which even progressive Christians regard with at least some degree of relevance. Objection number three. In Romans 1, Paul is speaking of sexual abuse, not homosexuality. Or alternatively, in Romans 1, Paul's condemnation is directed against those who engage in sexual activity outside of of their normal sexual orientation. In other words, heterosexuals who out of sexual excess and unbridled lust and licentiousness engage in 
homosexual activity. So they will, they will define the word natural in terms of your natural, that is your naturally felt sexual orientation. If you transgress that natural orientation, then it's a sign of your sexual license and sexual exp- excess, and you fall under Paul's condemnation. But it's not, it, he's not speaking against homosexuality per se. Well, again, with regard to the first part of that objection, it's another example of revisionism. The text says nothing about sexual abuse. It says nothing about pederasty. There is no hint of exploitation or domination in this text. Rather, the activity and passions described by Paul are explicitly consensual. Paul says they burn with passion for one another. With regard to the second part of this objection, again, this is revisionism. The text says nothing about one's normal orientation. It says nothing about sexually excessive behavior. Rather, it it speaks of a willful exchange of affections and activity according to God's natural design for affections and activity which are against or contrary to Paul's or God's natural design. The point is that the Bible speaks clearly and consistently when it condemns homosexuality as a sin and none of the revisionist arguments put forward by progressive gay-affirming Christianity hold weight. Either you accept the Bible's authority and therefore accept its sexual ethic, which affirms only monogamous heterosexual intercourse within the context of lifelong covenant monogamous marriage, or you reject the Bible's sexual ethic. That's the choice you have. You either accept the Bible's authority and therefore its sexual ethic, or you reject the Bible's authority and therefore its sexual ethic. What you are not permitted to do with any degree of personal or academic integrity is to revise the Bible's sexual ethic according to your whim. Number two, why doesn't Jesus talk about homosexuality? This is perhaps, I think, the most frequent objection given by the same-sex affirming crowd. It's so common that I thought that it merited its own point of discussion. The objection goes like this. If homosexuality is so bad, then why doesn't Jesus address it? Why does it only show up in Paul's letters? Aren't you elevating Paul above Jesus by highlighting homosexuality as a sin? Now, the assumption behind this objection is that we can pit Paul against Jesus, as if Jesus is the enlightened, woke representative of true Christianity, while Paul is nothing but a first-century homophobe. Now, there are all manner of problems that go along with driving a wedge between Jesus and Paul, not the least of which is that it utterly denies the divine inspiration of Paul's writings. Furthermore, not once did Jesus' closest followers who were with him during the entirety of his earthly ministry ever accuse Paul of getting Jesus wrong. On the contrary, Peter in 2 Peter 3 affirms that Paul got Jesus right, that Paul accurately taught the things concerning Christ. So let me offer four responses to this objection about Jesus' lack of attention to the issue of homosexuality. 
Number one, Jesus explicitly affirmed the biblical design of marriage as the lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. He did so in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and Mark 10, 6 through 9. In other words, when asked the question about divorce, Jesus argued against its legitimacy by saying, for this reason, have you not read? In the beginning it was not so, but for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two, that is the man and the woman, shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, Paul implicitly condemned anything that was not holy covenant marriage. Number two, Jesus taught that the only alternative to biblical marriage was celibacy. Matthew 19, 11, and 12. Number three, Jesus explicitly condemned the sin of porneia in Mark 7, 21. Porneia is a generic term for any sexual sin that occurs outside of the marriage covenant, including homosexuality. So by condemning porneia, he condemns everything that's not holy biblical sexual union in the covenant of a biblical marriage. And number four, in Jesus' ministry context, which was first century Judaism, there was no debate over whether or not homosexuality was a sin. Every first century Jew agreed that the law condemned it. Therefore, the topic did not demand Jesus' attention in the same way that legalism and Pharisaism did. Paul, on the other hand, ministered in a predominantly Gentile context where homosexuality was far more acceptable. Therefore, it demanded far more of his attention. So just taking into account the various contexts in which they ministered, we would expect Paul to speak to it. And we would expect Jesus to assume it. FAQ number three. Is homosexuality a greater sin than adultery or fornication? Well, in order to answer this question adequately, we need to understand where it's coming from and the tone in which it's being asked. On the one hand, if the question is coming from a place of self-righteousness, if it's coming from church members who are particularly vociferous in their condemnation of homosexuality while being perfectly tolerant of the so-called acceptable sins of gossip and gluttony and unlawful divorce or any other sin with which the church is all too often okay and all too often overlooks among its own members, then my response to this question would be that of Jesus in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's a very real sense in which the church has abdicated the moral authority to speak on the sanctity of marriage when it refuses to address violations of the sanctity of marriage which arise from rampant and unlawful divorce in its own ranks. There's a very real sense in which the church has abdicated the moral authority to speak on the issue of sexual morality when it refuses to address and discipline sexual immorality and cohabitation in its own ranks. There is a very real sense in which we have no right to the speak to the world about its immorality until we set our own house in order. So if someone is asking about degrees of sin as a smokescreen for self-righteousness, as in, at least I don't do that, 
then my response is to remind you that Jesus' most damning condemnations were directed not to those outside the church, but to those inside the church. Remember, it's Jesus who said that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for Capernaum. Yet, there are degrees of sin. And Paul does hold forth in Romans 1 homosexuality as an example of the grossest degradation and depravity which results from man's exchange of the truth of God for the lie. The intensification which occurs in Romans 1 from verses 24 and 25 which speaks about sexual immorality in general to 25 and or to 26 and 27 which speaks of homosexuality does suggest at least that homosexual immorality is at one place on the spectrum of depravity verses 24 and 25 and homosexuality is at another place further down the spectrum of depravity 26 and 27 I don't think we should shy away from that point Adultery and fornication are violations of the sanctity of marriage and the design of the covenant sexual union, but homosexuality is a violation against nature itself. Both are damning. Number four, are people born gay? This is a tough one. If the question being asked is, is sexual orientation a physiological or genetic predisposition? then my answer is, I don't know, maybe. I'm neither a biologist nor a geneticist. In fact, I'm not a scientist of any kind. In other words, I would be out of my depth attempting to answer such a question from a scientific point of view. Just from sheer observation, it appears that there are physiological factors which render some women more masculine and some men more effeminate. That said, not all masculine women are lesbians and not all effeminate men are gay. Some very feminine women are lesbians and some very masculine men are gay. So I'm forced to conclude that while there may be and probably are physiological or genetic factors that contribute to an aberrant sexual orientation, they don't seem to be determinative. There appear to be a number of other factors, both known and unknown, which contribute to homosexual orientation. Physiology may, probably does, have something to do with it. Psychology undoubtedly has something to do with it. Childhood trauma and abuse seem to play a role in some cases, although I would caution us to be very careful here. Because not all victims of childhood abuse are homosexuals. Likewise, not all homosexuals are victims of childhood abuse. And such a suggestion can become offensive very, very quickly. I think it's best just not to make the connection. The fact is, it doesn't matter. Most of us are not biologists or psychologists. And we would do well not to make pronouncements one way or the other on matters about which we do not understand. But all of us are called to be biblical ethicists. The morality of homosexuality does not depend upon physiological or psychological factors. 
if we believe in the biological unity of all mankind in Adam, and if we believe that Adam fell in sin and that his sin has devastating physiological, psychological, and spiritual effects upon his descendants, then it should not surprise us if at least some of those effects are a broken and perverse sexuality. But this broken sexuality does not alter the standard of sexual morality. A person with a physiological or psychological predisposition to homosexuality is not excused for his or her violation of God's sexual design any more than a person born with a predisposition to alcoholism is excused for wrecking the lives of himself or others. Or a person born with a predisposition to fits of rage and a lack of self-control is excused for assaulting or murdering someone else. Everyone is born with brokenness and predispositions to sin. This in no way alters the standard of righteousness. A predisposition to sin does not suddenly make evil into good. Salvation does not come from redefining righteousness to match our own sinful propensities. Salvation comes from the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating and sanctifying and transforming power of the Holy Spirit who mends our brokenness and leads us in paths of biblical righteousness. Salvation does not affirm our brokenness Whatever form that brokenness may take, it transforms our brokenness. Number five, is same-sex attraction sin? This is another tough question. To be more specific, the question I'm addressing is whether homosexual desire, same-sex attraction, is itself sin or whether it becomes sin when it is acted upon in homosexual practice. Now, I need us to be very, very careful here, and I need you to listen very carefully, because I'm going to make some fine distinctions this morning. I don't know that same-sex attraction is comparable to homosexual attraction. I assume it is. I've just never been same-sex attracted. I'm not sure that the two equate as well as one might think. For instance, if I see an attractive female who is not my wife, is that immediate reflex action of attraction sin? Most of us, I think, would say no. Attraction is a natural reflex of your heterosexual nature. It's like your leg kicking when the doctor strikes you on your kneecap. So when does heterosexual attraction become sin? I would answer that it becomes sin when it's allowed to germinate into lust, and then again when lust gives birth to illicit sexual activity. So from a heterosexual point of view, attraction is, in and of itself, not sin. It is rather a reflex action of one's innate sexuality. So is the same thing true of same-sex attraction? I'm inclined to say yes and no. Yes, in that I assume for those who are same-sex attracted that the same 
reflex action occurs when they see someone of the same sex whom they find attractive. I don't know that to be the case. I assume it to be the case. Did they decide to feel attraction to someone of the same sex? No. It was a reflex. But what they do from there determines whether they walk in sin or walk in righteousness. Responding to that reflex of same-sex attraction by allowing it to germinate into lust and by allowing lust to give birth to sexual activity is sin. Responding to that reflex of same-sex attraction by putting it to death by the power of the Spirit for the sake of Christ is righteousness. And yet, same-sex attraction is itself a brokenness of the image of God in which we were created. I don't want to give the impression that desires cannot be sinful in and of themselves. They can. They are. Ask any believer who experiences same-sex attraction, and yes, you can be a believer who is same-sex attracted, and they will tell you, A, they wish they weren't same-sex attracted because they know it's a brokenness. And B, that they've prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take away this unnatural attraction that they feel. For whatever reason, God has not answered their prayer yet, and he may not answer until they are in his presence in glory. So no, I do not think same-sex attraction, considered as a reflex action of one's broken sexuality, is itself sin. As long as the one who experiences same-sex attraction does not affirm that same-sex attraction is an unbroken natural affection which God designed, which God affirms, and with which God is pleased. Let me relate it to alcoholism, to an addictive personality. I don't think that a person with a predisposition towards alcoholism desiring alcohol is itself a sin. I think it's a reflex of their broken predisposition, that desire to excess. If they act upon that desire and lust, as it were, over that excess and then allow that lust to give birth to action and indulge in that excess, that desire becomes sin. If they recognize it as a sin, as brokenness, and they put it to death for the sake of Christ, that's righteousness. Regeneration does not immediately transform all of our broken affections. Sanctification does that progressively throughout our life. God is pleased when his children who experience same-sex attraction trust his grace, rely upon his power to remain celibate, and find his fellowship more satisfying than sin. Which brings me to book number two I would like to recommend to you. The first one, and these are available out on the book wall. First one was Kevin DeYoung's What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It's an easy read. It's clear. And DeYoung is one of the clearest thinkers and communicators on issues of biblical morality out there today. This one is called Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, subtitled, The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life. 
It's written by Ed Shaw, who's an evangelical pastor, who, as long as he is, can remember, has been same-sex attracted, who has remained celibate in spite of that by God's grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, praying all the time that God would heal that brokenness, but for whatever reason, God hasn't. And so he, he has approached life and ministry from the standpoint of saying, I'm going to trust Christ that by God's providence, what he has, the, the, the path that he has left for me is celibacy. And I believe that celibacy is the path of greatest joy and happiness. This is a dude who walks by faith. The third is a book, a really small book, written by Sam Alberry, who is a, another evangelical pastor who experienced same-sex attraction and still experiences same-sex attraction, but has seen sanctification and transformation work in his life such that he also experiences heterosexual attraction and is married. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? and other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. Number six, should I attend a same-sex wedding? Some of you have already encountered this dilemma, and many of us will face it in the not-so-distant future since same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. On the one hand, says Sam Alberry, it is a good problem to have because it means that you are, like Jesus, a friend of sinners. In other words, it means that sinners think enough of you to invite you to their wedding. That's good. On the other hand, what we do speaks as loudly as what we say. And it's my opinion that attending a wedding is a tacit approval of the marriage itself. Therefore, since you cannot in good conscience approve of a same-sex marriage, you should not attend a same-sex ceremony. But I would just as quickly urge you to be consistent. If there is a heterosexual marriage that you cannot in good conscience affirm, you should not attend that ceremony. Attendance at a ceremony is tacit affirmation of the union. Now, will this cause offense? Absolutely. But wherever did we get the idea that following Christ would not be offensive? That said, we should do everything in good conscience that we can do to maintain that relationship. So, Alberry in his book suggests that when we receive an invitation to a same-sex wedding, we should respond by politely declining the invitation and winsomely explaining why. This is our witness to the truth of Christ, and instead offering a dinner invitation to the couple to come over to your house, which is a witness to the love of Christ. I would suggest that as a really good New Testament via media. Sounds a little bit like Jesus who ate with sinners but never affirmed sin. Number seven, and finally, what do I say to someone I love who is gay? I'm concluding with this question because I know it's heartbreaking for some of you who experience this very personally. And I'm going to remind you of the two words which I believe ought to drive our thinking and action with regard to homosexuality. Those two words are compassion and conviction, or better, compassionate conviction. Never one without the other, always both. And I thought in order to answer this question, it would be best, since there are as many situations as there are people, to just give you an example of someone that strikes the wrong tone and someone that strikes the right tone. A few years ago, David Murray, the professor of Old Testament at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary and blogger at headhearthand.org, wrote an article entitled, What Letter Would You Write to Your Gay Son? 
Murray was responding to a, an article that was circulating the internet by a man who had come out to his father only to have his father respond like this in a handwritten note. James, this is a difficult but necessary letter to write. I hope your telephone call was not to receive my blessing for the degrading of your lifestyle. I have fond memories of our times together, but that is all in the past. Don't expect any further conversations with me. No communications at all. I will not come to visit, nor do I want you in my house. You've made your choice, though wrong it may be. God did not intend for this unnatural lifestyle. If you choose not to attend my funeral, my friends and family will understand. Have a good birthday and a good life. No present exchanges will be accepted. Goodbye. Dad. In response to that letter, which Murray states that he finds it hard to imagine any truly Christian father ever writing, Murray composed his own letter, a letter which he hopes he will never have to write. My dear James, I'd rather say this man to man and face to face, and I hope we will have a chance to do so soon. However, to avoid misunderstanding and to ensure that you have something in black and white that you can keep and refer to, I want to make sure you know one thing. I love you, and I always will. I do not hate you, and I never will. Our relationship will probably change a bit as a result of your chosen lifestyle, but my love for you will never change. I will continue to seek your very best, as I have always done. In fact, I will probably, by prayer and other practical means, seek your good as I've never done before. Maybe you've been afraid that I will reject you and throw you out of my life. I want you to know that you will always be welcome in our family home. Text, email, phone regularly. I certainly will. We'd especially love you to come home for birthdays and for other special occasions. I hope we can continue to go fishing together and to share other areas of our lives. Your male friend may also visit our home with you, but we will need to discuss certain boundaries. For example, I cannot allow you to share a room or a bed together when you are here, and I will not allow open displays of affection for one another, especially in front of the other children. If you stay with us, you will attend family devotions, and if you are with us on a Sunday, you will come to the church with us to hear the gospel. Perhaps these boundaries are not going to be easy for you to accept, but please try to understand that I have a duty to God to lead my home in a God-glorifying manner. Psalm 101 commands me to prevent sinful behavior in my home. While extremely anxious to preserve a relationship with you, I am especially concerned that your siblings are not influenced into thinking your lifestyle is fine with God or with us. I know that you don't like me calling your lifestyle and sexual practices a sin. However, remember I've always told you that I myself am a great sinner but I have an even greater Savior. I hope the day will come when you will seek that great Savior for yourself. He can wash us snow white clean. He is also able to deliver us from the bondage of our lusts and from everlasting damnation. I will not bring up your sin and the gospel every time we meet, but I do want you to know where I stand right up front and also that I'm willing to speak with you about the gospel of Christ anytime you wish. I hope you will not call this message hate. This is how love sounds. I will always be your dad, and you will always be my son.
as I will never stop loving you, I will never stop praying for you. With all my love, Dad. Now, if we can manage to strike this kind of tone in our heart and with our words, we will be a church that is holy and able to be a place of refuge for sinners where they can find love and redemption in Christ. So let no one say of First Baptist Nixa that we are homophobic. We are not afraid of sinners. We are not grossed out by sinners because we know that we are great sinners ourselves. And let no one say of First Baptist Nixa that we are hateful. We love people, not just the truth. And let no one say of First Baptist Nixa that we are cowards because we are willing to stand for the truth and for righteousness and for joy, no matter the cost. Let everyone say of First Baptist Nixa that we are Christ's, that we speak his truth in love, that we display compassionate conviction, and that we have an answer for the profound brokenness of this world. So may God help us to confront the coming storm, and it is coming, with grace, with strength, with compassion, and with the unchanging truth of God. My Father, I know that this has been heavy, and it's heavy because we're not talking about abstract sin and abstract truth. We're talking about people, people we know, people we love, people we are. So as we conclude this morning, I pray that your grace, your all-sufficient unending, boundless grace will flow in great abundance to every need represented in this place this morning. To those wrestling over the issue of whether or not homosexuality is indeed wrong when it seems to them natural, I pray that by your grace the truth will hit home like a hammer because before you rebuild, you shatter. Before you save, you convict. To those wrestling against same-sex attraction, but desiring to walk in a way that is faithful and righteous, and they understand that the desires that they feel are not righteous and not good and cannot be given into, God, I pray that you'll help them know they're loved, that they're cherished both by you and by this church, and that they are not strange weird or gross, but rather that they are our brothers and sisters and all of us who share a profound brokenness that manifests itself in different ways. We who believe also share in a profound salvation and in a profound ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is able to overcome every sin and every temptation and to keep us from stumbling and to bring us into your presence blameless with great joy. And to those of us who in the past have and in the present are tempted to feel superiority because same-sex attraction and homosexuality has not been our besetting sin, I pray that you'd humble us, convict us, do whatever it takes to remove from us this us-and-them mentality where our sins are somehow acceptable but only insofar as they're not like those sins. Make us a humble, holy, compassionate, and convictional people. And always, 
Help us to speak the truth in love. It's in Jesus' name I pray.